to The Debrief, everyone, here on the Law and Crime Network. Two of the three defendants charged this week in the presumed murder of a Connecticut mother of five are now out on bond. Fotis Dulos is accused of capital murder, while his ex-girlfriend, Michelle Draconis, and his one-time attorney, Kent Mawinney, are charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Dulos posted a $6 million bond this afternoon. Draconis posted a $1.5 million bond. They've been ordered to wear GPS monitors. Dulos is ordered to house arrest with a few exceptions. Draconis went to the hospital after bonding out of court, and the attorney remains incarcerated. All these charges all stem from the disappearance of Jennifer Dulos, the estranged wife of Fotis Dulos. She has not been seen or heard from since dropping her kids off at school on May 24th last year. The lead prosecutor for the Stanford Judicial District says forensic scientists did not complete their work until late December and that he finally felt confident moving forward after their reports crossed his desk. That's according to the Stanford Advocate. Defense attorney Norm Pattis, representing Fotis Dulos, has been pushing, however, for the state to file the charges for some time, saying he expected this to come. Here's some of the defense. We waited for months in anticipation for this warrant, wanting to see whether these beliefs would be produced or supported by fact. And the warrant we read last night offers us perishingly little that differs and advances a new theory of the case. Prior to yesterday, the motive was Mr. Dulos did this to extinguish his wife and the bitter divorce. Now it's to gain control of the trust fund. The case is actually charged in the alternative. It's either murder or it's felony murder arising out of a kidnapping. As to the strengths of the state's case, I think the state is still groping in the dark, grasping at straws, and it has thrown now a dart at Mr. Dulos, which has landed. The state believes he engineered and caused his wife's death. We don't. We're anxious for the trial. Or relieved by the allegations in the warrant. If that's all the state has. We're confident about trial. And Mr. Dulos has no interest in flight. He has every interest in fighting this case and reclaiming his, his, his reputation. Three attorneys are with us tonight here on the debrief. I want to begin with public defender Brian Buckmeyer with me here in New York. So, Brian, under Connecticut law, if the defendant seeks a speedy trial, my understanding is it has to occur one year from the date the charges were filed or of arrest, which here were only one day apart. So given that the defense has been saying, quote, bring it, that's the exact quote from a pretrial hearing, do you expect the defense to say, okay, prosecutor, you filed charges, let's go one year from now? Yeah, they're definitely starting the clock as soon as possible. What you do is either do the arrest or the indictment, whichever is later, as you stated. However, if there is some delay, you can file a motion that the charge is supposed to be Brian, we might have an issue with your mic here. I'm going to have to switch it over to uh, former prosecutor Mike Korobanek. So one thing I want to know is, if you're the prosecutor, do you wait more than seven months to file murder charges in this case to try to speed to write to rather try to starve off that speedy trial motion, assuming it's going to come? Well, as a prosecutor, you always want to go to trial with, for lack of a better term, all your ducks in a row. And you don't want to have to deal with speedy trial issues as you're putting the case together. The only thing, though, I, I would warn the defense in this case is be careful what you wish for. You may get it. Oh, certainly. Dina Dow, let's talk about the defense lawyering here. According to the court records, police kept trying to talk to Michelle Traconis between the date of the disappearance, that's May 24th, and then June 2nd when she spoke to police with her defense attorney present. Should her lawyer have done absolutely everything humanly possible to prevent that interview? Because now police are accusing her of lying through that interview. I think so, Aaron. I don't think anything good came of that interview. They, Until she was 
arrested, why talk to the police? I'm sure she gave incriminating information there. Mike Korobanix, I'm going to ask you about this. When you're a former prosecutor, now you practice criminal defense. Do you ever let your clients talk to the police? Absolutely not. The burden of proof is always on the prosecution. I've been doing this for almost 30 years now, and I have never seen anybody walk into a police department or speak to law enforcement and talk their way out of a charge, let alone a murder charge. Okay, is the ultimate course here then to say never talk whatsoever? You basically just don't say anything, wait for police to come up with something? Don't even talk to police, even with the attorney present. Well, I think when you talk to, when your client talks to police with you present, you're opening yourself up for malpractice. Why have an attorney if you know the words your client's going to give them are going to be used against them? Yeah, exactly. And here we had the defense attorney present, but it seems that no good came from it. So, Dina, how should this have rolled out? I think she should just not have talked to them. If she was worried that somehow not talking to the police was going to give an appearance of guilt, that's okay. An appearance of guilt is better, again, than any kind of incriminating information she most likely gave them during that interview. I want to see if maybe we can ask a question to Brian Buckmeyer here quickly and hope his microphone's working now. Brian, how should this have played out in your opinion? Let's put it this way. I've had many clients who have spoken to police officers and made their cases worse. I have never had a case where a client says, I do not want to talk to you, I want my lawyer, and the case has gotten worse. You don't talk. It's always the better choice. So the big question is whether or not she did this completely against counsel's opinion because certainly ultimately the decision was ultimately Michelle Traconis's and Michelle Traconis's alone and we'll never know exactly what her attorney told her. Let's move on now. Defense attorneys for Harvey Weinstein have lost their bid to get the judge in that case to step down as jury selection slowly moves forward in the sex crimes case against the former movie producer. That has not been an easy process. Apart from the drama caused by Harvey Weinstein's walker, fights the defense is picked with the judge and accuser Gloria Allred inside the courtroom Harvey, how are you doing today? is the necessary task of seating an impartial jury. Yesterday morning, 47 out of 50 jurors questioned were dismissed because they said they could not be fair. The judge explained that even if you had a reaction when the defendant's name was read, I must tell you that having heard of Harvey Weinstein or even the allegations made against him in the press or elsewhere is not disqualifying. That alone does not disqualify you. One potential juror, however, said she knew defense attorney Arthur Idala and his family personally. Among the other responses, one woman said, I read all the news, I have my mind made, and I don't think I'd be a fair juror. Another woman said, I read every article, and it's going to be very hard for someone who's been assaulted multiple times. And yet another, I was assaulted in my past, so I don't think I can be a fair juror. A number of others, both men and women, agreed that their personal experiences would not allow them to be fair. At least two women said they read Ronan Farrow's book, Catch and Kill, and that they could not be fair jurors. One man said he knew one of the journalists who worked heavily on Weinstein reports. Yet another juror said she knows someone employed by one of Weinstein's former wives. And another said, I have a very close friend who had an encounter with the defendant. The judge refused defense requests to move the case out of New York City and to another venue somewhere in the state. Sort of ironic to see Harvey Weinstein walk into a courtroom with words that say every place is safe to him right above the entrance. Let's look once again at the criminal charges in the New York case against Weinstein. Predatory sexual assault is the most serious charge with a possible life sentence. 
That charge requires prosecutors to show a pattern of conduct with multiple victims. The first two charges relate to the first accuser. The next three charges relate to a second accuser in New York. While accusations from only two women resulted in the New York charges, more than 80 have ultimately come forward with claims against Weinstein. Actress Louise Godbold is one of them. She told Law & Crime this week that Weinstein assaulted her twice in Los Angeles and also raped her best friend. I did agree to testify, but the judge wouldn't allow Molina witnesses who hadn't had exactly the same crime as the two women who are bringing cases against him in this particular trial. The night before the Molina witness decision, waiting to hear whether I would actually be called, I didn't sleep at all. And I can't even imagine what the women who are testifying are going through right now. Even coming to do this press conference, I didn't sleep for three nights beforehand. So I actually, I know the women who are testifying and I consider them extremely brave because Harvey's defense lawyer obviously is not gonna pull any punches and she thinks because she's a woman, she can get away with it. But it's disgusting, it's a disgusting way to treat sexual assault survivors and women who have so bravely come forward at great personal cost. Okay, let's jump back in with our panel now. Dina, I'll start with you. Everybody's got an opinion about this. These answers from the prospective jurors, are they any surprise to you whatsoever? Not at all, and I think we're gonna get a lot more of them. This case has been in the public press for you know a long time now, and a lot of people already have an opinion on whether or not he's guilty and a, and a larger opinion on sexual assault in general. Ultimately, though, only getting really two jurors out of that whole pool that was there yesterday morning, that's an awful lot of people who say that they can't provide a fair trial here. Even that number surprised me a little bit, Brian Muckmeyer. And I know you wanted to talk about the Molyneux witnesses. It's basically New York's other bad acts witnesses. Why aren't they all coming into this proceeding? So in New York, there are two standards that they have. There's a standable for prior crimes and Molyneux's prior uncharged crimes. And so if you can show an MO that this person has kind of like a modus operandi of doing the same thing over and over again, you might allow for Molyneux witnesses to testify. But if they're not very similar, they might not come in. So you might have raped people in different ways, shapes, or form, but they have to be a similar type of rape for them to come in. Yeah, and many states have different standards as to exactly how close the accusations need to be factually to one another in order to come in. We watch some states where almost anything that's even remotely like the charged crime comes in. New York squeezes that a little bit tighter, as I understand it. Mike Korobanics, you've seated many, many juries here. When you start getting responses from the jury pool like we heard in that report, what goes through your mind? Well, I, I, having experience as being a sex crimes prosecutor when I started out and having tried many defense cases, these are not unusual day-to-day -day occurrences without publicity. You put this Weinstein case, the Me Too movement, all the publicity it's getting, all the media coverage, it's going to be very difficult because people are also becoming, the problem is, is ed, jurors educate one another with their answers. Somebody hears an answer and said, wow, that got them off. I'm going to answer the same way, and I'm going to get off this jury. Brian Buckmeyer's nodding. He looks like he's been in this position before, too. Yeah, it, it, it's an orchestra. One person says, well, this is the reason why I can't get on. I was like, well, I've got a cousin who did this, and i got a citizen of that. And, I, and this person was her dog walker, and so it's going to be a wildfire. You might want to limit the amount of potential jurors that are questioned at a time to try to get a real panel in this case. So in other words, Dina, is it a problem to basically bring all of these jurors in in mass droves and ask them the same questions? 
I thought it was interesting how one of the jurors' response was that she couldn't be impartial or he couldn't be impartial because a Fred had an encounter with Weinstein. That almost sounds like it could be evidence in the courtroom of his bad behavior. Oh, certainly. I mean, the, the level of intricate answers we got out of people in this jury make me think New York is the smallest town on the planet. It seems like everybody knows everybody else. But look, uh, everything's local when it all boils down to it. Let's go to the newsroom now here at Law and Crime, where Chief Investigative Correspondent Brian Ross is standing by with what he's working on for his broadcast tonight. Hi, Brian. Hey, Aaron. Coming up tonight, a crisis in American law enforcement. Police suicides, a soaring number. Last year, more officers took their lives. They were killed in the line of duty. We have three important guests standing by to go live to talk about their firsthand knowledge of dealing with this and how to perhaps solve the problem, Aaron. We'll see you at that broadcast in about 15 minutes from now, Brian. And still ahead tonight here on The Debrief, Ohio prosecutors try to convince a jury that a mother and father murdered their baby who was born hooked on drugs, even as the mother tries to take full responsibility for killing the little boy. The Ohio trial of a mother and father accused of murdering their infant is attracting a lot of attention here on Law and Crime. Jessica and Daniel Groves face a list of charges over the death of Dylan Groves. The defense said he died on March 28th. That's two and a half months after everyone admits he was born hooked on drugs. Authorities say the little boy was murdered, wrapped in plastic bags and duct tape, and then put in milk crates bound by chains, padlocks, zip ties, and wires. That so-called coffin was weighted down and thrown in a well. Baby Dylan weighed just five pounds, four ounces when he was placed with a foster mother five days after he was born. He had tremors or his arms would shake. Okay. And his legs would jerk. <laughs> he had sweats and he liked to be held at all times when he wasn't asleep or in his mama room, I was holding him. What kind of behavior was uh, Mrs. Groves exhibiting? Kind of flailing her arms around, and she was really happy and excited. I just felt she was under the influence of something at that okay. time. What kind of demeanor did you see from Mr. Groves? He was quiet. I didn't suspect anything as far as him being under the influence of anything. Did you express some concerns to Children's Services? I asked if they would drug test. Were you advised that Dylan was going to be placed back with his parents? I assumed he would be eventually, not in 12 days, but eventually. Daniel was there to pick up Dylan. He brought in a car seat for Dylan, and I was getting Dylan's belongings together. I gave them to Daniel. Okay. And I gave him um, Go ahead. some formula diapers his blanket, his quilt from the hospital, some pictures, I gave him a Bible. On cross-examination, defendant Jessica Groves' defense asked the foster mother about the call she made to child services before baby Dylan was given back to his parents. I felt like she was under the influence of something. I felt like she was high on something. But you didn't mention that on the day of the family team meeting, did you? I did. I called after the team meeting. Are you surprised that there is no record of you calling after the team meeting on the 24th? Am I surprised? No. Okay. Why are you not surprised? 
I'm just not. Okay. You knew that Dylan was going to be returned to the father. Right. You objected to that, correct? I didn't feel like 12 days was long enough. Yes, okay. I disagreed okay. with that. Firefighters say it took three of them hours to pull the makeshift coffin containing Dylan's body from the bottom of a well. One said the smell was so strong he had to step away. The medical examiner explained what was inside those milk crates. These milk crates were um, secured together by a chain with uh, multiple padlocks, metal wires, and zip ties. Um, contained inside is, uh, you know, another structure in addition to multiple um, 18 large rocks. Dylan's body, this iron anchor type device that is over the top of his body. Dylan, who is wrapped in multiple layers of plastic. So now we begin to open this plastic. And we do this kind of layer by layer um, and find six different plastic items that are wrapped around his body and secured with duct tape. And, and the next one wrapped around his body and secured with duct tape over and over and over again. The medical examiner says baby Dylan died from homicidal violence but could not give a specific cause of death. His body was decomposing from being concealed and in water for months. Do you consider these injuries blunt force trauma or trauma? Yes. This was a lot of work, a large extent to go through in order to conceal um, this child's body so that it would not be found. This is the skull fracture on the right side. Is it your opinion that Baby Dylan was alive or deceased when that injury occurred? Also showing signs of healing, so he was alive. The remaining fractures? The left side of the skull. And then the fractures to his arm and leg. Is it your opinion that Baby Dylan was alive or deceased when those fractures occurred? Well, by just looking at the fracture itself, there are no signs of healing. So. Those fractures would either have to be made um, after death or at the time of death. On cross-examination, the mother's defense attorneys asked the medical examiner about determining a date for when baby Dylan died. You said on 6-12 he weighed 4 pounds 8 ounces and was 20.5 inches long, correct? Yes. Back where we were. Uh-huh. And that... Dr. Hudson had testified on, on, uh, that on 221 that he weighed 7 pounds, 15 ounces, and 20.3 inches long. Would that be consistent, or would you be surprised if the date of death was closer to 221 or closer to 612? I can't use his weight to determine his date of death. What about his length? I can't use it. I can't use his length either to determine the date of his death. 
Okay, let's jump in with some analysis here. Uh, along with a couple of late updates in this case, the state has decided to rest its case here. It's not surprising. Medical examiners usually go last for the state. They're witnesses with a lot of important details, and it's great to leave juries with them. Uh, we're hearing that there were really no motions made by the defense, though, and usually after the state rests, Brian Buckmeyer, the state, uh, or rather the defense, moves for some kind of judgment of acquittal. We didn't hear that, at least not on the record. It's, it's just procedural. Even in cases where you know that you have a dead loser, your client is guilty, it's procedural. You do it for appellate issues, you do it because you took an oath to uphold the Constitution and ensure that the prosecution is held to their burden, whether or not your client is innocent or not. You do your job. And, and to see that this didn't happen, I, I, I'm hoping and praying there's a strategy, but if they're not, it's very disheartening. You know, of course, they may try to do one tomorrow morning because they have to do a little bit more on the record before they go into things tomorrow. So I don't want to flat out say it's not going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet in a, in a venue that we have been able to see. Uh, we're also hearing, Dina Dahl, that the mother's defense is going to go first. So we may start this case out first thing in the morning with the baby's mother, the defendant, taking the stand because we heard the promise during openings that she would. True, and it'll be very interesting to see what she has to say. As we know, she's already going, we believe she's going to admit to killing the baby. How she does that in a way that doesn't implicate her husband, that will be the thing that will be interesting to watch. Oh, certainly, Dina. One more question for you. Uh, trial watchers were really latching on to this issue about the date of death there. We had the defense during opening saying it was March 28th, the last day that there was an independent witness who saw the baby alive. Uh, but then you've got the state at one point giving a date in June. So did that examination that we just watched really make the state's expert look bad, or is this just something Thing that's not precise. It, I don't think it's precise. It sounds like the baby was in that well for a really long time. I imagine the weight and there's water involved. But we did see testimony saying that the father said that the baby died sometime between the 28th and the 30th. To me, I don't know why the precise date here actually matters so much. Mike Korobenix, one last question for you here. Uh, we heard from the the uh, the testimony that there that the drugs were in the baby system, but that the baby wasn't being breastfed. So it just sort of adds another layer of uh, gruesomeness to some bad facts in this case. Well, it just goes to this whole opioid crisis, the the addiction, and and this the the lack of care of this child. Certainly, certainly. And we will continue to watch this case tomorrow, assuming the mother is going to take the stand first thing in the morning. We hope you'll be watching then. It will be a very important day in court. Recaps on the debrief.